Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. Balancing writing against any other aspect of life, your day job, spending time with friends, eating, sleeping, is always a difficulty. So how on earth do writers decide whether or not to have children? If they do, how do they continue to write? When does it make sense not to? Listen in as Jenny Shank, Amanda Ray, Stephen Wingate, and Nikki Beer have a wide-ranging discussion about how they faced this choice. I'm Andrea Dupree. I'm the program director here, and I'm wondering how's stuff going so far. Is it going okay? Oh God, that was kind of yes. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so I'm going to introduce the panel, and then they're going to take over. Tonight's topic is how do you balance life, like real life, with art, whether you're a parent or full-time worker or a layabout. Um, yeah, right. Um, how do you do it? What's, what's up with you that you can do this? Um, so I'm going to start over here with Stephen Wingate. His book is back at the Tattercover Bookstore. This is an outdated. Really, outdated. Isn't it pretty an out an outdated bio? King of the world. He has since become king of the world, but before he was king of the world, his stories received awards from Gulf Coast and the Journal, and have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. He teaches writing at the University of Colorado at Boulder, which is not true. Not anymore. No. South Dakota? South Dakota State. South Dakota State. And um, he has a website, stephenwingate.com. Still true? Yeah. And also a couple other books. Yeah, a chat book and a new book of uh, prose poetry coming out in uh, November. And a big fancy agent selling your novel. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, you never That's always how it is. You never count on That's what I hear. <laughs> Amanda Ray, amazing... Fantastic, Amanda Ray, Pushcart winner, Missouri Review, Sun Magazine, fame and fortune are coming. Um, she also has a beautiful daughter, Lael, um, and is one of my favorite people, but let's not belabor that. <laughs> um, Nikki Beer, she just signed my book, Fresh from the Presses. She's from Long Island Town of Northport. New York. There's also a Northport, Michigan, which my family hails from. There's a Northport, Alabama, too. Oh, really? Um, she holds degrees from a little place called Yale um, <laughs> at the University of Houston and the University of Missouri-Columbia. She's received a literature fellowship from a place called the NEA, a Ruth <laughs> Lilly Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, uh, Louis Untermeyer... Louis Untermeyer? Louis. Lulu. Lulu Untermeyer uh, Fellowship from Breadloaf. And, God, so many other things, you guys. If you want to know, buy the book because it's amazing. The Diminishing House. You will not be sorry. She'll even sign it. I teach uh, at the University of Colorado, Denver. That's right. And she, her students have been our some stellar bloggers for the Lighthouse Top Secret blog that... 
tens of you read. <laughs> um, okay, and last but not least, our moderator tonight, Jenny Shank. Her book right here, The Ringer. What is more topical than baseball? I mean, I know people are into soccer right now, but baseball came first in America. Be patriotic. It's actually not about baseball. And that's what I'm, I'm just meant. kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Clearly. Um, okay, so where's your bio on here? Oh, it's hidden. Her stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in such pu- publications as Alaska Quarterly Review, McSweeney's, Mich- Michigan Quarterly Review, The Onion. Um, a place called a place called Bust. <laughs> and Rocky Mountain News, Dallas Morning News, Boulder Daily Camera. Um, she's basically amazing, you guys. She's been teaching off and on for us, did the, the social media salon today, which I got several emails about how amazing it was. So check out her book, buy it back there, get her to sign it. That's the secret, get her to sign it. This is the panel. Thank you, guys. You take over. I'm going to get off the stage. Thank you. (laughs) So I proposed this panel on parenting and writing because I always would get the question, well, how do you do do that at all with, with kids? And I thought I could give some tips. But then I was glad that various people suggested we broaden it philosophically um, to, like, do you want to have kids at all when you're an artist? <laughs> do you want to... Uh, what, what's going on? What, can, what inquiries into the subject of parenting and writing can we make? And we even have a non-parent on the panel to even broaden things further. So I thought that we're, we're each going to talk a little bit, and then we'll open it up for questions, and we'll do whatever, whatever you guys want us to do, really, because that's what we do at home. Um, with our kids. <laughs> Can I get you anyone a cup of milk? Um, okay. One juice per day, though. <laughs> I thought, would you like to go first, Amanda, with your, I thought yours would broach the topic and then we'll go. Yeah. Sure. So, um, I had a daughter about a year and a half ago and, um, thanks. <laughs> and before, before I had her, I wasn't so sure that I, wanted to have kids. It wasn't something that I um, ever envisioned myself doing. And uh, I recently found an old note, a journal of mine. This isn't in- actually what I intended to say, but as you can tell, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it. So um, my journal, when I was like 10 years old, I said that I didn't want to get married or have kids, but I would if the husband and kids would stay out of my way. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I maintained that attitude up until I um, got pregnant and within hours was like, oh man, you have to surrender to this in a way that I really wasn't expecting, Um, which I did manage to do. And so um, one of the things that I was most concerned about, instead of the practical question of who's going to take care of this kid all day, which actually didn't occur to me until she was born and like a week afterwards, I was like, am I seriously supposed to continue? (laughs) Like, how much longer am I going to have to take care of this kid all day long? So, but <laughs> until then, I was mostly concerned with how will having a child affect my the craft of writing? Um, 
And so I started gathering up all these quotes anytime I saw something about it and hoarding them and worrying about them. And um, I started noticing that a lot of the female writers that I most admired, like Virginia Woolf and Willa Cather and many others, don't have children. And I worried about that. And I worried about mommy brain. Everyone talks about mommy brain. And I was like, uh, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and then I worried about my brain and what would happen to my brain. And my friends would all sort of snicker because I don't think my brain is exactly a national treasure, I guess. <laughs> they were like, it's not that big of a deal, Amanda. Um, so then I, I did have mommy brain, and it's not that much different than Amanda brain. So that's good. But um, one of the things that... Um, one of the things that I read, um, I have a quote here from Louise Erdrich, who was talking about um, the way that having a child sort of opens you up to the world in a sort of a terrible way and can change what you're interested in. And so I was afraid that I would become interested in um, just writing books about children getting hurt, you know, like preoccupied with, like if you wrote about it incessantly, then maybe it wouldn't happen. Um, or maybe I would write books in baby talk or... Um, or Dick and Jane sentences. I, I didn't know what would happen. And um, Louise Erdrich said, um, being a mother alerts you in such a primal way. You're alerted to any danger to your child, and by extension, you become afraid of anybody getting hurt. This becomes the most powerful thing to you. It's instinctual. Either you end up writing about terrible things happening to children, as if you could ward them off simply by writing about them, or you tie things up in easily opened packages, or you pull your punches as a writer. Those are all deadfalls to watch for. There is also one's inclination to be charming instead of presenting a grittier truth about the world. So um, that was something that terrified me. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to become like this really puffy mom, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, but I, I don't think that has happened. Um, I'm still interested in writing about the same things. But I do agree that um, I'm a lot more preoccupied by how terrifying the world is now. Um, but I didn't used to wear a seatbelt. I mean, it was kind of optional for me because, like, I don't know. Amanda. It's such a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know. My car is so old that it doesn't beep if I don't buckle. And I was, like, really proud of that. I was like, hear that? Nothing. That's that's because my car. So, um, but now, I, like, after I had my baby, I was, like, buckling it and checking the buckle. I was like, I have to be alive because I have a baby. So um, I think you, the way that you interact with the world really changes. Um, but I am pleased that I'm still able to write. And, in fact, um, the time that I spend writing has become more valuable to me because there's so little of it. And I used to, I'm not even kidding, stare at a wall for, like, six hours. Just kind of thinking, kind of. And I can't even imagine doing that now because you get your like two hours of time and you're you're gonna make the best of it because um, you know you might not get it tomorrow. The kid might have a cold. The kid might have a stomach flu for six days and you're not gonna get a chance to sit down at your desk again. So um, so yeah, it's made me a lot more appreciative of time. And then there's some other stuff, but I'll say that later. Want to go next, Steve? Sure. Okay, Steve will be next. <laughs> Oh, you want this one? Well, it doesn't matter. Oh. You have to, you have to, you have to, you have to okay. Second mic, right? <laughs> I want the black one. I want a black one. I don't want this one. You have to share. <laughs> <laughs> this one's silver. I like the black one. Are you trying to goad me? <laughs> um, it's, 
a lot of times the discussion, I, I'm very glad that I'm on this panel. Actually, I think it's Nikki's doing. You, oh, no, 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 it's not. No. I meant to oh. tell you. Oh, no, it's, it's not, not you're doing. Okay. It's not. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I thought for a while that, that uh, Nikki had insisted that there would be a man on this panel, and that's the only reason I'm here. No, uh, no and then it was I was, nice, uh, it's the a nice reply narrative. was, duh, of course there's a man on this panel. I was like, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was a nice, it's a nice narrative because uh, I think that uh, usually the, the conversation about parenthood and writing uh, tends toward women because very often traditionally women are the uh, primary caretakers and in my family it's no different I'm definitely not the primary caretaker but uh, without question this uh, has affected the way that I write and the amount of time and the kinds of time that I have to write uh, so uh, you know males also have got uh, a lot of adjusting to do if you're going to enter into family life uh, for me it was uh, not a surprise. It was intentional to enter into family life, but for the longest, longest time, I told myself I didn't want to have kids because I wanted to have more time to write. And uh, unfortunately, what I did with that time to write is I mostly pissed it away and did absolutely nothing. I basically just dicked around. I, I explored every single possible option that I could uh, without ever having to decide about what I really wanted to do or say because I had a lot of leisure time because I didn't have a family. And uh, for me, the all the good things in my life as a writer that have happened, uh, almost all the good things, have come after I became a dad. And I think that, the, you know, looking back and thinking about it for this panel, I think the number one thing is that I finally was forced to make a distinction between what can I write and what must I write? Because the time shrank just as it as it would for a mom. I mean, the time just shrinks. It's not as if just because you're you're male, you have suddenly carte blanche and you know, there are no demands in your time. Of course, if you're a dad, you're you're still on call twenty four seven. And you know, maybe it's a little bit different uh, in, in the things that you're on call for. Uh, for instance, I, I did very little breastfeeding. <laughs> Uh, and the couple of times uh, I tried it, it really hurt. <laughs> it was really not pleasant. Uh, but I was I was on call because I just was on call. And if you're you know if if you're in the family life, you know that you're on call because that's your number one job. Uh, there are and I was forty before I became a dad, and I was a lot younger when I decided I want to be a writer. So I just kind of said. Oh, I have plenty of time. I have plenty of time. I have plenty of time. And what did I do with that time? I didn't decide anything. I remained indecisive. I remained undifferentiated tissue because I didn't make that decision about what it is that I wanted to write. Along the way, there are, there are a few people who have really helped me, uh, a few fathers. Uh, one guy uh, named Bayer Johnson, I owe him a big shout out at any point. Uh, I, w- I was saying to him, oh, no, I don't want to get married and have kids because I don't want to have time to write. And he said, Psh, dude, you're full of it. Uh, because uh, everything good that happened in my life, he said, as a writer, it, uh, came uh, after I had kids because suddenly I had somebody else to live for and write for other than myself. And I think that that was kind of the, the pattern that I was stuck in, thinking, well, I me, 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 me. And once I became a dad, I realized, oh, wow, I'm actually engaged in a uh, like multi-generational process that is way, way bigger than me, like ripples down through the generations and I, I owe it to my kids to, to actually continue writing and to do as, as well as I could and do the most that I could as a writer so I stopped just writing for myself and started writing for kids so I've kind of I've been on both sides of the fence here um, 
And uh, another one other point before uh, turning it over is uh, another great piece of advice I got from a father, a guy named Andrew Krivak, who's out in Massachusetts. Actually studied to be a, a, a monk, priest for a while. He's going to be a priest. And he decided, no, I want to get married and have kids. Uh, and, and he said, when I, st- when I became a father, I stopped looking for days when I could write and started looking for hours when I could write. And this really, really clicked in. And I think that's probably going to be a theme here, uh, at least uh, among the parents, is that the, the, uh, seize, the, seize the day becomes seize the moment when it comes to how you're going to manage your, your writing time. And I think that that necessitates and engenders a certain type of decisiveness about what it is that you're going to write. And that's for me, is the, the, the transition that I underwent uh, when fatherhood came along. Okay, Nikki. Uh, I'm the I'm the non-parent who's broadening out you all, um, <laughs> and so I just ha- I had a few things uh, that I jotted down um, in terms of expressing the non-parent point of view, uh, and it's actually it was actually a really interesting choice for me to be in this panel. Um, because uh, I realized I'd sort of never publicly come out as a non-parent before. Um, you know, it was, it was, you know, uh, it was, it's something that's been a truth for, well, for my entire life. Um, <laughs> when I was six, I wasn't a parent either. Um, but, um, you know, suddenly being asked to be in this panel and thinking, oh, I've never actually spoken publicly about this. And realizing, oh, well, this is a good opportunity to think about what I would say. Um, because you do, I think, hear more conversations, I mean, privately, about people trying to manage their writing time as parents. But you don't, aren't necess- writers aren't always having discussions amongst each other, I think, as being non-parents and what that means to be a writer and be a non-parent. And so I, I really welcome the opportunity to think about it. Uh, and one of the first things that I wanted to say was that um, in terms of uh, choosing to not have children, for me, uh, it was very clear that it didn't absolve me of the responsibility of staying informed about issues that affect artist parents. Um, that I don't, I don't get to check out from my responsibilities to my community. You know, when you're a writer, you are always a part of a community, and you have to be responsive and well informed about what people in your community needs, and that includes writers who are also parents. Um, and also being mindful of uh, checking my privilege as a non-parent. Um, never forgetting that my relationship with time and money is, especially as it relates to childcare, is going to be different from those of artist parents. Um, and to always try and be respectful of this when I'm working with other writers, if I'm setting up readings, if I'm setting up editorial deadlines or budgets for literary endeavors, or so on and so forth. Um, that I that I always have to sort of be thinking outside of my own contact in terms of, context in terms of my relationship with money and time. Um, actually, and time especially is one of those things that's often ignored as an expression of one's economic position and responsibilities. I don't know if some of you guys read this. Um, it was in the most recent on Sunday review section of the New York Times. Uh, there was a, a piece by Maria Konnikova, um, and she had a piece in which she discussed the problem of looking at poverty as a purely financial situation. Um, and she quotes Harvard uh, economist Sandul um, Mulanathan's theory of that there are three different types of poverty. There's money poverty, there's time poverty, and there's bandwidth po- poverty. Um, the last of which uh, is really a, a poverty of, of mental attention. And so one of the things that I had to be conscious, I have to be conscious of is realizing that people who are in charge of other little people, um, being responsible for them, are going to have different relationships, not just to money, but also to time, and also that their mental attention, they're going to have demands on their mental attention in a way that I can't conceive of, um, and to always be respectful of that. 
Um, so that was so just having to read have having to, happening to read the hap, happening to read the piece um, in the Sunday Times really clarified some things for me, um, and, I, and I highly recommend it. Um, one of the things that was really interesting for me does anyone know about the the Money for Women Barbara Deming Memorial Fund? Know about this? Yeah, um, you know it's the uh, oldest ongoing uh, feminist granting agency now in its third decade, and they're taking applications again right now. I think, um, and uh, twice yearly they award grants to individual feminists in the arts, uh, writers, and visual artists. Grants of five hundred and fifteen hundred dollars each, usually at least five thousand dollars award per cycle. And what I found in looking at the descriptions of the winners' projects in just the last three years over and over again in terms of what these artists and writers were requesting money for, consistently you would find people requesting money for childcare over and over and over again. And just to be conscious of that, to know that that's a demand on someone's time as an artist is really important for me as a non-parent to remember um, in terms of, again, the needs of my community. Um, and as Steve said, one of the conditions I had uh, for appearing on this panel was that there was also a man on this panel because conversations about uh, you know, making art and parenting is so often you know, uh, it's often a woman-dominated uh, conversation. Um, and this, you know, and of course they said, yeah, of course there's a guy in this panel. I said, okay, great. Um, <laughs> but this represents my interest in having both men and women be active in these kinds of conversations, which are often treated implicitly or explicitly exclusively as women's issues. And just as we need outspoken male feminists to advance the cause of equality for women, uh, so too do we need outspoken artist fathers to advocate the cause of artist parents. Um, we need to bluntly address how the roles of wives and female partners in the history of the achievement of the male genius implicitly creates damaging expectations, assumptions, and ignorance for both the male and the female artist parent. Um, So we need dudes talking about this too Um, and finally I just, uh, one more uh, two more things I want to talk about was that choosing to not be a parent led me to think more seriously about my responsibilities to younger people in other words if I wasn't going to be making people and raising people, you know, that didn't mean that I wasn't still responsible for younger people in my community. And that made me think more carefully about what my role was going to be in mentoring younger writers um, and, you know, how I could help them. And it also made me think more carefully about the fact that even though I wasn't, I don't have children and I'm not going to have children, that I still need children in my life. Um, That they're still extraordinary extraordinary valuable people, of course. Um, But I think uh, for writers, you know, it's absolutely essential. I think as writers, we're always trying to get back to that state of of joyfulness and and spontaneity with language that I think we we all recall, you know, when we were children. And I think, you know, the older we get, the more neurotic we get and the further distance we get from that state. And having a relationship with the children and just observing them in terms of their relationship with language, I think is really helpful to us. And of course, they are still people. You know, we have to be students of people. We have to be you know, we have to have a good scientific observation skills in terms of people, and that includes children and how they relate to the world and how they relate specifically. I think I think it's really interesting to see how children relate to power in terms of tantrums and so on. And, you know, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, I know it's different when it's, it's your kid, too, but and I'm not saying, oh, I love watching children have tantrums. It's so fascinating. But it's really interesting to hear my friends talk about their kids and to talk about where the tantrums come from and what their dynamics are and to just think about children's relationship to power and the things that they can't do and how they react to that and to just think about you know how does that make you think about your own relationship to power um and actually that's a that's kind of a transition to the last thing i want to talk about which was i think we always have to be skeptical both the 
parents and the non-parents of any situation that seems to try to play us off against one another. Um, that we need to be skeptical of those situations and that the time that parents and non-parents may spend sniping at each other, I don't I mean, I, I don't think we're doing that, and I don't think we're going to, but I think you do observe those conversations. And I think one of the things to think about is that time spent sniping at each other is times that we're not spending critiquing or dismantling the bureaucracies or systems that oppress us both and make work-life balance difficult for everybody. Um, you know, <laughs> to argue amongst ourselves means, you know, some higher-up bureaucracy is benefiting from that, that we're not paying more attention to them. This is really interesting to me. For instance, um, why isn't the parent friendliness of MFA programs in writing more a part of the conversation? Um, I did, I actually, I, you know, the AWP website, um, they have a, a guide to writing programs. And uh, I went to their online guide for writing, creative writing programs, which includes entries on 954 writing programs, which includes MFAs, MAs, PhDs, BFAs, and so on, and many other academic iterations of creative writing programs. And out of curiosity, I plugged in the word parent into the database, you know, because the database can, can you know, includes all the profiles of all the creative writing programs, and I plugged in the word parent just to see what would come up. And zero results came up. 954 writing programs of all sorts of different iterations, and none of them thought that somehow the role of the parent was essential to their profile and how they presented themselves to potential students. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, And of course, I'm not you know, I'm not trying to damn anyone, but I think it's interesting that that's a conversation, that's an element that's not present. And if you think about it, you know, why is this relevant? Because a program that doesn't consider parent friendliness as part of its identity or values may not be considering other personal demands that students may have to manage, which could be long-term illness, mental illness, physical disabilities, learning disabilities, any of those things. In other words, if they're not thinking about parents, who else aren't they thinking about? So that's when I want to wrap up my remarks by saying... And thanks, Nikki. And what you were saying about um, kids reminding you of the joy and playfulness of writing, I've thought about that a lot because I write novels, and it's not fun to write a novel. Sad and horrible. <laughs> and I, my daughter writes stories about penguins, and only about penguins. And I saw her working on a story about penguins, and she was sitting there at the computer, and, and she was like, type me something in. And then she said, and then the penguin gets a torpedo to take out the lion seal. And then she's just cackling. She's cracking herself up. And I just, I'm like, yeah, that's what it used to be like. That's why I started this down this road. Because I was an eight-year-old giggling about this penguin story I wrote. And we forget where we started from and why we did this. Um, I think, unlike the others on the panel, I'm the only one that... I never had any doubt in my mind that I wanted kids. I knew if I found someone who would mate with me, I would have the kids. <laughs> it, look, it looked dicey for a while, but it happened. And <laughs> I just love kids. I feel about kids the way that uh, Holden Caulfield feels about them, that they're not phony, and they're funny, and they're weird, and they're just, they're great. <laughs> and they take a lot of time, too. Um, so I knew I always wanted kids, and I had been trying to write really hard for for a long time like from probably when I was 18 I was like seriously trying to write a novel several novels every day I was working I was like white knuckled grip on the thing 
and then finally I was just I got married and I'm like okay I'm, I was 29 I was ready to have a kid and I'm like okay I, nothing has happened I've published a few short stories and things here and there haven't ever published a novel I'm not going to be a, a wonderkind we've all given that up a long time ago <laughs> and but that's okay I'm, I'm just going to have a kid because I want to have a kid and who knows what ha- I didn't know what would happen next I didn't know if that means you have to give up writing or, for a long time or what would happen but I did have this white knuckled grip where I was like trying to make things happen and then after I had a kid I let go and then I would like occasionally submit things and find agents and revise and then stuff started to happen and so um I had my my daughter Maya she's eight now when I was 29 and I had written almost a full draft of my novel that was eventually published before she was born and then after she was born I um I realized I need to do another draft. So working just within like her one-hour naps once a day, I revised the entire novel for two years until I had, like, then I had my son, and it was a deadline. I give myself a deadline when I was having a kid, which I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> I don't want any more deadline, kid deadlines. Um, but um, so I finally, I revised it again. And again, with a second kid, I'm like, okay, well, now, I, now I'm done for. Like, I'm never going to write again. Um, with one kid, I thought I found a little time to do it. With two kids, who knows? But then I did it. I revised it during that two years. And then I had my son, and I didn't have any energy to write at first. But I thought, found a few times, a uh, little time to query agents. And when I was three months old, I found an agent. Or when I was three months old. <laughs> Your brain, your brain goes really quick. Uh, when my son was three months old, I found an agent, and he sold my book. And um, they they wanted revisions, which I never. I had a two and a half year old, and like a five month old, and we were moving, and we had to show our condo, and like I was like, "Don't play with your toys!" And I would grab them, I put them away, and then someone would come to see our condo, and I'd have to like breastfeed in a prairie dog field, and. <laughs> There's no way that I would have gotten any writing done except that I had a I had a book contract and I had a deadline and isn't that great clarifies the mind and so <laughs> so I did it because I had to and um and I found that I was just able to write in these little chunks of the day and that just like you guys that found that you were staring at the walls I remember I used to when I before I had my daughter I worked at the onion and I was able to somehow finish my entire job for the week in three days then I would have two days where I would mess around (laughs) I was supposed to be working but yeah I would write for like one hour of that day (laughs) I would mess around for the rest of it but yeah it really clarifies things um so I have a few tips of like how because people have asked me how did you keep writing when your kids are little I'm the primary caregiver I didn't have any child care um, no child care until they were in preschool I would get a couple I would get like 10 hours a week or something like that so um, well the first thing I say to like m- mom writers that are beating themselves up for not writing if you're not sleeping yet don't worry about it. you're fine just sleep first you need to sleep before you can write so don't worry about it until you're kid is like one or one and a half or whenever they're sleeping through the night then you can write again um you need to be kind of strict about scheduling to build yourself some time to write during the day so those those people that like sleep with their kids in their bed and they're like oh if they want a nap they want a nap they're not getting any writing done so you have to be kind of strict you're going to bed now and you're going to have your nap and if you're not going to fall asleep you're going to sit in your crib you know for an hour while i write and it's actually good for the kid. Like, there's books that will back that up. So 
That's <laughs> an option. It's an option. It's not an abusive option, some people say. Um, so be strict about the scheduling with them and guard that time. I remember when they were little, like, nap time was at 1 o'clock, and I would do anything to get home by 1 o'clock. I'd be like, we're, going, we're getting home by 1 o'clock, and that's because that's when I write. And so I would somehow get them down, and sometimes I was really exhausted, and I could I could like take a nap for 10 minutes that would refresh me and then for the rest of the hour and a half or whatever I had I would write and I would just write flat out um and it was a lot I was a lot more productive than I had ever been before and I want to say that nap time is your time and so is preschool time you don't clean you don't don't uh answer phone calls you don't make doctor's appointments no one, no one's there. It's your time. Your, your time to write. You just let the house be dirty. And Louise Urgers has a poem about that, about not cleaning. And I think she has like six kids too. Um, so just take that time and use it for your writing, and don't make excuses. And learn to do the chores that you are jamming in that time at other times. Like, even though it sucks, just take your kids grocery shopping with you. Uh, make them help you with the laundry. Do do. I mean, it's hard, but you can do it if you force them, <laughs> because your time, <laughs> your time is nap time. <laughs> I mean, if you make them say, "Okay, you are going to put away these napkins while you're folding laundry," they they will do chores with you. Um, the next point is if you write 400 page novels, um, maybe switch genres while your kids are little. <laughs> And that's been backed up by a couple of writers, such as Alice Monroe. Um, I found that hard. So after I had my kids for a while, I was just revising. I find it easier to revise than to come up with the next 400-page novel. And then I was writing little essays and things. And now I'm trying to actually write a book. And it's, it's doable, but it is, it is challenging. Um, the next point is don't underestimate the power of very short time periods. Like my kids take 35-minute swim lessons. It's cruel how short they are. <laughs> And, and I run out from the pool into the hallway with my with my notebook, and um, I know a lot of people in town, but I'm like, don't talk to me. So you gotta be kind of mean, and <laughs> you sit there with something that you've printed out that you can um, revise a little bit. You can read it and you can take notes, and you can get a lot done. And the next time you're facing the computer, you have those notes just from 35 minutes. It gets you somewhere. It gets you the next step along. And don't discount it. You can't just say, oh, it's only 35 minutes, or oh, it's only 45 minutes. You can really, you can write or revise an entire novel that way if you do it consistently. And I think just touching your book, um, if you have no other time to do it, that just touching your book on that, that's the only time you have on Tuesday and then you have like an hour to write on Wednesday helps you to just re-engage with it so you're not totally lost the next time you come back to it if you've spent a few minutes with it throughout the week. Um, so the pace is really slow and it's discouraging, but you can, you can do it. I, I can tell you that you can do it. Um, I think even if you never needed a writing group and it's deadlines before, you might you might need one now. Deadlines are helpful. That's what I figured out when I had that book contract and also when I have a writing group. Um, for the past year, it's been a kind of rough year, and uh, write, my writing group deadlines are the only times I've actually forced myself to sit down and write something. And so that's helpful to have other people go knee you on to that. And then about Nikki's point, I think keep in touch with your writing buddies who don't have kids. 
I have um, my really great friend Jessie Alvarez. She's a great writer you haven't heard of yet because she hasn't published a novel yet. But she lives this fabulous life in New York, and she does readings, and she goes to conferences and residencies, and um, I just chat with her about what's going on in her life. And sometimes it inspires me to try things that I thought I couldn't do. Like, I didn't know if I could ever do a writing conference again. I was like, not until I'm 60 or I don't know. <laughs> but then she was like, let's go to So I, I looked at the writing conferences, and a lot of them are 10 days or two weeks, and that's too much. But Aspen is just up the road, and it's it's less than a week. And Jesse was like, let's go to Aspen. So I, I was able to, I managed to do that. I went, I think it's like five or six days. And it was fine. Everybody survived. <laughs> and so, so those non-parents can inspire you to um, keep doing inspiring things. And then the last thing I want to say is there's going to be times, despite your best intentions, where parenting is going to briefly eliminate writing from your life. And that happened to me this year in a lot of ways because um, in last September, the floods in Boulder badly damaged my house. They took out my basement, my writing um, office and my son's playroom and it was just like total chaos and then it was followed subsequently by a lice infestation in my children and <laughs> anyway, we still don't have walls on my office or doors or floor um, and so it's been challenging to write like at the kitchen table and also my son was kind of petrified he he used to just play in his his little toy room while I would write and ever since then he's been like on my feet can I be in your lap <laughs> <laughs> and he's gotten he's got better like right at the right when it happened he would build these things with his trains and he'd be like and then the flood came how are we going to save him from the flood so he'd build these structures to save the trains from the flood and just talking about it constantly and he's getting better and he's going to kindergarten more importantly in September so I mean this was a time where I just had to be I had to be there with him because he needed me and the world can wait. The world can wait nine months. As long as you don't let it become nine years, um, the world can wait nine months for your, your next brilliant thing that you're going to say. <laughs> um, so now I would, I would love if any of you have questions or comments, or we can talk some more too. Any, any hands? Yes. That's really thoughtful. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I can't say that there's anything that I, that I think of. I mean, and the thing is that I can't, you know, I can't speak for all non-parents. I mean, I'm sure there are non-parents who are who can be real jerks to parents, um, and you know, I don't I don't know that they deserve much consideration. Um, I think you know, uh, be, creating uh, invitations so that non-parents can have interactions with your children, um, and allowing the non-parents in your lives to still be present somehow in your children's lives, to be role models, to be supportive, um, and to you know, and you know, if you want to say to the non-parents in your lives, hey, you know, I'd I'd like you to still be a part of my kid's life, you know, I'd I'd like my kid to have a relationship with you. I think you know, my kid can still learn a lot from you, and I think you know. That there, that there are people who would be really open to that. And, you know, I think sometimes non-parents don't know how to insert themselves into family life because we're not in, we're not in the middle of the dynamics. We don't know what we're welcoming, welcoming. We don't know what we're intruding on. And so maybe to create that kind of invitation, that I think everybody wins. Yeah. 
from that. Yeah. Any other? Qu oh yes. Yeah, um, he asked what what role do our significant others play in the time factor and the financial factor. And yeah, I have to fess up. My husband is a software engineer who has health insurance, which I I enjoy. Um, but I'm working hard too. But yeah, that helps to have one parent that does that. But I've heard all kinds of situations. I've heard um, families with two artists um, just making it work somehow. Uh, I. I shoulder the Monday through Friday childcare, and then I, that's why I say nap time is your time because I've taken, I've like built these pockets into the day where I get a little time, and I'll cover them at every other situation. So nobody needs to know what I do from one to to three thirty. That's my time to write if if that's what I'm writing at. And I also think it's um, also helps to build in a regular time where your husband or significant other is um, taking the kids somewhere where you it's agreed that you're going to have these four hours and then they're going to have these four hours and then you have other time for family time so I have them um, I have the kids always doing like swim lessons or soccer or something on Saturday morning and I leave early and disappear until noon and then I take that let my husband have a couple hours off so it's just agreed and then we do stuff later in the day and on Sunday we do it all together family time so just make agreements that because if you don't have an agreement maybe that could be a place where you would be arguing <laughs> yeah absolutely go ahead or uh, does anybody else want to respond to with, with that uh, uh, I definitely agree that having some kind of schedule and working things out and uh, talking about things beforehand uh, absolute lifesaver because otherwise you do argue um, one of the things that I deal with a lot is the guilt of not being available to my children when I'm writing. And uh, I think uh, my kids are the oldest of this bunch. I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and they're now old enough to know what's going on. They know, oh, daddy's not playing with me because he's working on that book. <laughs> oh, is my is daddy's book more important than me? <laughs> And it's uh, that's a, a dynamic that wasn't there a, f uh, a few years ago before they, they started to understand what specifically I was doing. It used to be I would just go behind a closed door or I put my headphones on and, well, daddy's just doing something and we're not invited. And now they know what it is. So the dynamic has, has changed uh, quite a bit. And I am uh, continually wrestling with the guilt of uh, taking myself away from my family life in order to write. Um, one of my favorite moments as a parent, um, this was when my, my kid was still, oldest kid was still young. I think he was maybe five and he wanted to play and I wanted to write and my office was in the basement. And I said, look, I'm going downstairs in the basement. And, and he looked at me and he pointed to the basement and he said, you go downstairs, drink coffee, right? <laughs> and and uh, now, you know, my office is upstairs. So he jokingly says, you, know, you go upstairs, drink coffee, right? Uh, but but it, it really pointed out the the uh, it can change the dynamic not just between spouses but when the kids get really aware of what's happening it changes the, the dynamic with the kids too so I, I try to talk about it with the kids as well and I imagine as they get older I'll try to talk about it w with them more about the dynamic of what it means uh, to to need that kind of time and talking to older friends. Uh, 
who've had who, you know their kids are all grown they say oh yeah my my son's in therapy now because i i was writing and i didn't i didn't want to play with him you know he wanted to play, he wanted to go out and play baseball and i was writing and that was my writing time and he kept on trying to horn into my writing time and i kept on saying no and you know now he can't stand me uh so the the dynamic of of, of time and how it functions uh is a, if you're going to enter into family life as a as an artist as a writer uh, I certainly want to have, I think, that negotiation be open and, and out front rather than just saying, this is my time. Because if they're the point, they will catch on to what's happening and they, they need to know. Amanda, do you have anything to say about that? Your spouse? Yeah. Um, I definitely struggle with the sense of mommy guilt when I'm not with my daughter. And um, especially when she goes through those phases where she's really clingy. And then I ask myself, is she is she already psychologically damaged and she's clinging to me because she knows that I'm trying to think about what the title of that thing should be while I'm looking at her playing with blocks with this like plastic smile she can sense that I'm like trying to check out so I stress about those things a lot Um, and I think um, one of the things that would really help with that and I'm not sure if it's I think it's for both fathers and mothers but I think it's more acute for mothers and that is that um there's such a competitive nature to to parenthood um, and there's a sense that you have to do it perfectly and that my entire my child's entire psychology and her future and everything about her life rests on every single moment and do I have her in the right lessons and she can't she doesn't know yoga yet and like like all the ways that I am constantly yeah it's because I'm a writer. <laughs> um, so she's I feel 18 like, months, so she's getting a little bit old not to know about yoga. <laughs> so I feel those those pressures, especially when I, um, you know, you, you, we all know that mom <laughs> who is like, what? You know, she's not. You don't have her enrolled in whatever. You're like, no. You know, get away from me. So um, yeah, if you never like if you've never been to the PTA meeting and. Like, there's all the PTA moms. They're like, yeah, we don't see much of you at school. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I think one thing that would really help is if we were just kinder to mothers and, and fathers in general. Just um, if our culture, I mean, we can't change that in this room, but um, to whatever extent you can just be skeptical of um, the pressure that's on us to create a human being. Because I think um, Grace Paley said something about how, like, you're not that important. Like, give it up. Like, I, you know, to some extent, my daughter's personality is what it is and it's going to form on its own. And, um, you know, I'm helped out by the fact that I, you know, when I was growing up, we, our parents would just put us in the back of the truck and then, you know, all you did is, like, dodge tobacco spit while you're driving, like, 80 miles an hour down a highway. So, like, you know, and I'm, like, strapping her into, like, 900 different contraptions, which it's like children are lunatics. You just have to strap them down all the time. I don't... I think that might be psychologically damaging if, if anyone's concerned about that. Um, but um, the other thing that I think about a lot is that I come from a long, a long line of failed artists in my family. And so when I was growing up, a lot of the pressure I felt as a kid was this feeling that I... My existence, by being born, I had interfered with my father's art form and so I felt that burden very heavily and so I don't want my daughter to feel that way and so (laughs) I'm doing her a favor when I go do my work so that she later doesn't have to inherit this stack of yellowed pages and all of mommy's bitterness because you know she couldn't write because you know you needed help with your blocks like all day every day 
I I'm saw sure a, she'll get into other things, but right now it's just blocks. I saw a panel um, with Gish Jen where she talked about that at AWP this year, and she said that she hadn't written another book since she had her kids, and she started writing a book because she didn't want the kids to think that they had caused her to stop writing. <laughs> David, can I call in people? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I'm one of those people who uh, always wanted to be a parent, but not at the moment that I became a parent. I was like one of those guys on the news who, turn on the TV and there's somebody who has somebody saying, yeah, no, I didn't know it was loaded. I, <laughs> just happened. But uh, I guess, you know, although there was there were some dissenting voices, uh, most people are talking understandably about um, competing claims on time. Um, in my case, you know, I found that, uh, that my children, I'm a very involved dad, and uh, I sort of changed my writing projects in ways that I couldn't have imagined. And they're in all of my books in one way or another. I mean, uh, I think it could even happen if you're writing a zombie novel, you know, it'd be easy. Like, why did you just say, just say that again, I'm going to kill you and eat you, but you can survive. And I, I, I find that, um, I guess I don't see as much of a conflict. I mean, admittedly, there's a lot of time involved if you're going to do a good job, but I found there to be, uh, they say that the funniest things, like, you know, my, I would just write them down and then steal them, and I don't even have to credit them. <laughs> my, my older son used to ask me questions like, you know, what are cats for? Things like that. I mean, they're, what do weird people do? He said, I said, kid, you're looking at it. <laughs> Observe closely. And, uh, I, so I find it to be uh, one doesn't seem to me at any rate to be so difficult to move one's writing projects towards one's life. Uh, I, I guess I'd ask you to meditate on that because I found that to be um, very rewarding. I've sort of pursued it in an intentional way. Well, you're a unique and, and wonderful individual, and, and not everyone is as unique and wonderful as you. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, I, I feel that uh, definitely, I mean, what you're talking about is uh, is exactly the, the process I described of, of having one way of working, which was just open-ended. I didn't have to make any decisions about anything, and all of a sudden... Had to had to make it. Uh, I think maybe I'm a more melodramatic person, and and you have a more sanguine outlook. But I think what you've described is exactly the transition from from non-parent to parent. Is you, you just simply have to rearrange what your projects are. Uh, and some people I think do it with uh, more fluidity and ease. Um, I, I know a couple of really really super successful uh, women writers who both have three kids, and I'm thinking. Oh my gosh! I, I almost just you know just having two and not even having to breastfeed them except for those occasional times when it hurt. Um, I, I, I just just nearly knocked me over. I think some people, depending on uh, you know your your nature and also perhaps on you know, I, I think that you can affect the quality of that transition depending on how you prepare yourself. Ergo, panels like this and, and people opening those questions uh, up to each other so that, so that maybe if you're approaching parenthood that you can actually come into it with some kind of consciousness of how you're going to make that transition from just writer to writer slash parent. Um, I think that's exactly right, that you can alter your writing life to fit what your new life looks like. And um, I found this interview with Alice Monroe from the Paris Review from a long time ago, which I might just read a little bit from of it. 
And um, someone, the interviewer asked her, have you ever had a specific time to write? And she said, when the kids were little, my time was as soon as they left for school. So I worked very hard in those years. She had four kids, I think, by the way, and one, Pul- one Nobel Prize. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. My husband and I owned a bookstore, and even when I was working there, I stayed at home until noon. I was supposed to be doing housework. See the theme? Let your house go dirty. And I would also do my writing then. Later on, when I wasn't working every day in the store, I would write until everybody came home for lunch, and then after they came, went back, probably until about 2.30, and then I would have a quick cup of coffee and start doing the housework, trying to get it all done before late afternoon. Cram the housework, not the writing. I, I agree with that approach. And then she said, it's, they asked, what about the, before the girls were old enough to go to school? And Monroe said, they're naps. And the interviewer incredulously says, you wrote when they had naps? And Monroe was like, yes. From, from 1 to 3 in the afternoon, I wrote a lot of stuff that wasn't any good, but I was fairly productive. The year I wrote my second book, Lives of Girls and Women, I was enormously productive. I had four kids because one of the girls' friends was living with us, and I worked in the store two days a week. I used to work until maybe 1 o'clock in the morning and then get up at 6, and I remember thinking, you know, maybe I'll die. This is terrible. I'll have a heart attack. I was only about 39 or so, but I was thinking this. Then I thought... Well, even if I do, I've got that many pages written now. They can see how it's going to come out. It was kind of a desperate, desperate race. So that's Alice Monroe. <laughs> do we have other questions? Okay. Yes. Kate. Kate wants to know if we question whether to have kids. And the answers are yes, 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 no. I was just looking for someone to reproduce with me. <laughs> I like the kids. Um, any elaboration? Um, I, went, I went back and forth for a long time, for as long as I could remember. I mean, you know, from childhood I was adamant that uh, I, I didn't want to get married, um, because boys are stupid. Uh, <laughs> and then eventually, you know, puberty hit and I came around on that a little bit. Um, but, you know, I did think for a long time that I wanted to, I wanted to have kids. And it was not a settled issue um, when my husband and I got married. Um, we just sort of left it as an open question. We just sort of said, ah, we haven't said no. We haven't said yes. We're thinking. And... You know, time went on, and it was just the kind of issue that we would sort of check in about every so often, and we would kind of look at each other and go, huh? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. Um, and, you know, I would, you know, and my friends would have children. I would watch them, and I would sort of check in with myself, you know, hold them up and sniff the sniff the, the creamy, sugary baby head scent that they get and, you know, feel their squishiness and, you know, all the, and I, I say that lovingly, you know, the, the adorable squishiness. Um, but, you know, you know, and it was something that I was definitely checking in with myself about, but I would always come back to the conclusion, no, I don't, I don't think this is what I want. And so it was something that I thought about a lot, but I always found myself coming back to the same conclusion. And it was when that became more certain that I started thinking, okay, well, how else can I have children of my life, even if I'm not going to have children of my own? But it took. It, it was. A, it was a long. It was a sort of a long, many, many years of thinking about it. Same thing as her. Only I then got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, then I had to think about it differently at that point. Um, but yeah, I also. I mean, I don't know exactly why I was so hesitant about it. I would just check in with myself and be like, eh, gross. 
painful, hard, <laughs> and I was really afraid um, of that look that parents have. And now I understand where what that look is. But I would see parents, and they would just have this kind of faraway, glazed look. I mean, especially when kids are younger. I mean, it's different when you're dealing with the screaming and the pooping and stuff. When they're able to talk, and you can use their, you know, use the things that they say in dialogue. That's not what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with screaming and vomiting and hair pulling and. All, and on me, just on on my person all the time. Um, so, I would see parents with young children, and I would see this look, and I would be like, I don't want to have that look. And um, they're, I could tell they're not listening, and uh, I can tell that they they don't even know where they're at right now. And and I and I even wrote down because I was trying, I was brainstorming like, do I want to have kids? And I was writing all these questions down, and I asked my dad a bunch of them, and he was, like, laughing. He was like, these are the stupidest questions I've ever heard in my life. And um, one of them was, yeah, what is, the, what is that look that parents get? And I was like, you know, why? And now I, now I know what it is. And What is it? It's sleep deprivation. I mean, deprivation. they're so tired. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, like, whatever I was saying was probably really inane, and they were like, you know, I don't have, this is, I got 15 minutes here, and this idiot is on and on and Nap on. time begins in 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Wrap yeah. it up. Yeah. I was, in all cases, I was talking to them without their child, so they were just trying to, you know, think about their, that they were free, and I was making them not free. I was like their child. <laughs> I feel like that's more common among my writer friends that they really struggled with whether they wanted to and decided later on that they, the ones that did have kids decided later on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those. Uh, it took me a long time. I think probably for reasons related to, to my own family and my own dad, uh, I, I really didn't seriously think uh, about having kids until I was as old as my father was when I was born. Because uh, he was kind of a messed up individual, and I was f- for decades thought that I was going to be just like him, and I was cursed to be just like him. And then I, you know, got to 32, and I wasn't in jail, and uh, you know, I realized, hey, I don't have to replicate his life. But even from that point, it was eight years uh, until it actually happened. So it, it took. I am one of those people, that, like like Jenny mentioned, this took a really long time. Uh, and I think it's it wasn't all because of writing. A lot of that delay was just because of just life. Um, I I want to add something to that and that was a feeling that I had because I I was 34 when I got pregnant and um, all these people I started I was feeling a lot of pressure to have a baby and I think that starts happening to women um, in your 30s and then as soon as I got married people started calling me and be like hey do you want me to drop by a bunch of baby stuff and I was like why and they're like you just got married and I was like I don't see how those things are related like what is wrong with you you know first comes marriage then comes a baby in the baby carriage I know I should have paid closer attention to that read the literature (laughs) so to those of you women who may at some point be feeling that pressure and you think oh well you know maybe I if you start feeling this societal pressure to have a kid as soon as you have the kid like the minute it has popped out of you then you're like kind of a boring breeder who's interrupting everyone's dinner with this screaming kid so there, I felt this I felt this intense judgment on both sides of it and I was really frustrated by that and I also was like oh you know I'll have a kid and that my husband wants a kid my you know my I thought these people would be happy right <laughs> and then almost the first question you get is like when are you going to have another one? You need to have another one. And I was like, this solved nothing. Like, so um, I don't know what I don't know what that speaks to, but um. I, I I mean I think it's I think it's I mean that it's a it's a 
it's a feminist issue. You know, yes. it's it's the idea that you know the culture that we live in is that whatever choice a woman is making needs to be corrected. Um, <laughs> that whatever choice that that the very fact that a woman has a choice about anything is inherently threatening. So that you know you would choose to have a child and then choose to not have another one is some is wrong to some people. And now you, you have owe to, your child a child. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's not about you. It's about what you can do for other people. Yeah. You know, about yeah. how you can fulfill in terms of your body and your life. You know how you serve others. Um, so. <laughs> And these kind of debates come up a lot, maybe more online and like when they need to find stuff to debate about than in real life. But you feel the pressure. But did you guys read that thing maybe a year ago where this woman wrote a book where if you want to be a writer, you can only have one child? And she wrote the essay. But then, yeah, I have her comments. So then all these awesome writers wrote in the comments, this poor woman, she was like, just starting out, it's her first book, she got an excerpt in Salon, telling everyone to just have one kid, and then Zadie Smith comes in the quote, in the comments, and um, she wrote, I have two children. Dickens had ten. I think Tolstoy did too. Did anyone for one moment worry that these men were becoming too fatherish to be writer-esque? Does the fact that Heidi Julevitz, Nikita Lawani, Nicole Krauss, Jhumpa Lahiri, Venda Levita, Curtis Sittenfeld, Marilyn Robinson, Tony Morrison, Morrison, and so on and so forth, I could really go on all day with that list, have multiple children, make them lesser writers. Are four children a problem for the writer Michael Chabon or just for his wife, the writer Eilat Waldman? And she added... To, to all, women's freedom is the issue of time, which is the same problem whether you're a writer, a factory worker, or a nurse. Uh, we need decent public daycare services, partners who do their share, affordable childcare, and a supportive community of friends and family. As for the issue of singles versus multiples versus none at all, each to their own. But as a parent of multiples, I can assure Ms. Sandler that two kids entertaining each other in one room gives their mother in another room a surprising amount of free time she would not have otherwise. <laughs> And then poor, this poor lady, this is her first book, and her publisher probably made her write this provocative essay. And then Jane Smiley chimes in, too. <laughs> Jane Smiley, Pulitzer Prize winner, mother of three children of her own and two stepchildren. Um, she agreed, the key is not having one child. It is living in a place where there is excellent daycare and a social world that allows fathers to have the time and the motivation to fully share in raising kids. So, poor lady. I hope she went on and wrote other things. <laughs> I think Alice Walker was um, also had said that famously to only have one kid, because she said, with two kids, you're a sitting duck. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear your perspective on that. Okay, so she, this poor woman, has a two, four, and six-year-old. The two-year-old does not nap. Uh, my my son at least napped until three. Like one one nap time ends. It's a bad time. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. I used Sesame. I used Sesame Street for a while, but. Um, some people, some parents I've talked to get up really early to write, and I'm like, that sounds really bad because I need sleep. And then others go write really late. Um, I would kind of, 
I, I think the writing is probably really good for you. It makes you feel good. So try to make it happen, but also give yourself a break until you have preschool or something to take care of it. What would you guys suggest? This is like a now we can um, advice would, column. Yeah, I, I was talking to. Um, I'm forget Vicky Lindner about this a couple of days ago, and she was saying how wonderful it would be if writers, if if writing friends would sort of take some take someone else's kids for an hour or two and sort of swap back and forth. So I mean, I would. Oh, I must have. De- I definitely misunderstood. Because <laughs> it's on Dupree. <laughs> I have one more suggestion. Um, so I didn't have much childcare until until my kids started preschool, and the rec center offered like you could get an hour and a half of childcare for six bucks, and they don't check if you're exercising. <laughs> <laughs> Do we solve your problem? Yeah. Do they do they take Labrador retrievers? <laughs> we'll have to find out. So he's asking, so he shared some of his work with his daughter who's in college, and she gave an interesting reaction, and he wants to know how we think our kids are going to react to um, our work when they grow up. Um, want to go through? Oh, um, I, um, I give my kids uh, copies of whatever book is coming out, and I write a little inscription to them, and I put it in their bookshelves with all their other stuff. I just tell them to not, uh, the word that starts with F-U-C-K, they just need to just ignore that word. Uh, but I, I want them to know what I've been doing. Uh, I want them to know what I've been doing with my time. It's it's, uh, and I want them to be involved uh, it, it, to some extent. Uh, you know, they they uh, they're there while it's happening. You know, they go through all my moods when I'm when I'm writing, and I want them to know what's what's going on uh, because I, I feel like. Um, one of the things that I'm doing is uh, this is my competence and this is one of the things that I am tr- teaching them. If I were a carpenter, I would be teaching them about carpentry. I'm a writer, so we have conversations. And I say, well, here's what this, here's what I'm doing. I'm taking all those words. Remember that I've been typing those words out here? Well, now I'm going to read it out loud and with my red pen and I'm going to scratch these words out and I'm going to put new words in until I think they sound good. And so we, we have that conversation, and I want them, when they're old enough, to understand that the, you know, the F-bombs are not me, but actually my characters speaking or my narrator speaking. Um, I, I want them to read my work, and uh, I hope that when they do, they'll recognize their dad and their dad's life in it. My, the best review I ever got was my book came out when my son was three and he just took it down off the shelf and he laid it on the floor and he turned to the back where my author picture was and he laid his cheek against me on the book and he just patted it 
stayed there for a minute then he picked it up he said here's your book mama (laughs) and uh i do i don't i don't know i talk to my kids about what i'm writing but i talk to them about books all the time and um like we read harry potter together we read little house on the prairie together and we're talking about like why we're interested like we cried together when we thought that the dog was dead in little house on the prairie and then and then the dog turned out to be alive and i'm like well how what do you think of the author doing that and i'm like and my daughter had tears running down her face i'm like you cried over this dog that has been not alive for like 100 years isn't that great what books can do um, and and then she takes it because they're starting to write uh, little things in, in second grade and um, in her penguin stories and and she and I was like what do you what do you need to do Maya and she's like I gotta make it get worse before it gets better so you know more more you know <laughs> that's what you have to do you have to add more sea lions and problems before you can let the penguin have their moment of triumph and she knows that just from talking about books. I think one of the things that I've loved um, in terms of uh, my relationships with children and my writing is that I'm this person that they can show their writing to um, that, you know, can give them advice and can ask them questions and can make suggestions for them in a way where maybe where, where you know, their relationship with their parents at whatever times in their lives, might, it might be too charged to do that, like getting criticism from your parents about their writing might be too sensitive for them but I'm kind of this outside party that still has some legitimacy but they have an emotional relationship with so sometimes maybe they're more interested in hearing feedback from me because I'm also because I'm not the person who's telling them to pick up their stuff and you know and you know you know all all the all put the dishes in the sink and things like that you know there's just there's just kind of this one form of critique that's coming from me and that you know that it, they can find use for that. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities where I've been able to sort of be this writer in the family who isn't their parent. Um, and who could, and I can also suggest things for them to read, too, which they also seem to enjoy as well. Um, it's hard for me to imagine my daughter ever reading. <laughs> but um, I'm sure she will, and I hope that she enjoys my book, though right now she just enjoys bad books. And um, just pushes away all the good ones. But then if it's got, like, horrible rhythm and pictures of ugly babies, that's the one she wants to read over and over again. So I hope her taste improves. And um, My son makes me read this book, Welcome to John Deere Country, every day, twice a day. Who was John Deere? I could tell you. <laughs> every day, in every way, babies eat. Like that's not even true. I don't know. <laughs> Did you have a question? Well, I just wanted, I just think that what you said was really. Um, I hear other men say uh, that I think one one way that parents sometimes are different, and in a very, I think where women can learn from men is that men often teach children about what they're doing instead of mothers often follow what their children are interested in. And, and as a primary caregiver, I see my husband teaching my children about things that he loves. And I think that's a really good example for mothers to teach, to spend time writing or to spend time doing something you're interested in, at least to, to, to use yourself as an example instead of just a constant servant, which I think we all feel like we are a lot of times. So I think that's really an important point and a distinction that is a, it would be really useful for women. It, it's also a good self-protection because <laughs> then they they know when I go away and do it they know what I'm doing yeah. and and so the I think that I'm just using it 
in some way because I want to ch- teach them what I love, but also because I, I want them to resent me less. Yeah. <laughs> it's, hard, it's, really hard. it's hard for me to do that. It's hard, and I think I need to be more like you. I think I need to be more like, you know what, what happened to I've, sh- I've got a shaver. This is right. <laughs> It's an incredible, I mean, the gift of, of creativity, it's, it's something that's not always valued in our society. And we, uh, and uh, writers, we're in a great position to give that gift to other people, whether it's our own children or other, other people's children. Uh, I think, you know, we've got to pass it on. Any more questions? I think that's it, maybe. I think that's it. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Thank you for coming. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.